as you can see, I, I need lots of help. Good evening, everyone. You know, I, I really don't have a name for my remarks tonight. The, uh, the material I'm going to present is, from, is actually part of the middle section of a three-point presentation entitled The Rebirth and Destiny of Israel. So I guess this really falls under Rebirth of Israel. If I had to give it a subtitle, I'd probably call it something like Predictions and Positions of Dr. Thomas and Theodore Herzl a study in contrast. We're going to be begin the review tonight with looking at two familiar predictions regarding the rebirth of Israel. But first, a, a little bit of setting. The Jews were run out of and removed from Israel back in Roman times. And Emperor Hadrian, after putting down a Jewish revolt in A.D. 131, issued a decree, it's called the Hadrian Edict, and that decree banned all Jews from Judea on pain of death. Now that Hadrian Edict was not rescinded until the year 1856, when the Sultan of Turkey rescinded it and invited Jews back in. Of course, at that time, the land was destitute, and not only destitute, it was utterly destitute. The Jewish people up until that time had made no effort to return to the land of Israel. And in fact, immigration back did not start until the year 1882, which was 25 years after the Hadrian Edict was rescinded. Now, the two predictions that we want to contrast are those of Dr. Thomas which came out in Elpis, Israel in 1850, and that of Theodor Herzl, which was made in 1897. And I'm putting these together because we quite often see these two predictions linked together, or at least mentioned together, because they have a similarity. They both talk about the rebirth of Israel, and they both use the number 50 years. We're going to begin by reviewing what Dr. Thomas wrote in Elpis, Israel. And again, this was written, I guess, in 1848-1849, issued in 1850. He said, The restoration of the Jews is a work of time and will require between 50 and 60 years to accomplish. There is then a partial or primary restoration of Jews before the manifestation, which is to serve as the nucleus or basis of future operations in the restoration of the rest of the tribes after he has appeared in the kingdom. The pre-adventural colonization of Palestine will be on purely political principles, and the Jewish colonists will return in unbelief of the Messiahship of Jesus and of the truth as it is in him. They will immigrate thither as agriculturalists and traders in the hope of ultimately establishing their commonwealth. Now, keep in mind, these words came out six years before the Hadrian Edict had been rescinded, 32 years before immigration even began. And when you look at it, it seems fairly accurate. 
if we take immigration from 1882 and declaration of statehood to 1948, that comes up to 66 years. He said between 50 and 60 years. Now, we often, again, find associated with that prediction the prediction of Theodore Herzl, who was very intimately and intricately associated with the establishment of Israel. Am I coming across okay in the back? No. Need to speak louder? Is this any better? Okay. So, so I want to spend some time not only comparing their predictions, but more importantly, contrasting their positions and their understanding regarding the rebirth of Israel. Theodore Herzl, turn-of-the-century leader of political Zionism, In 1897, he wrote the book Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State, in which he advocated creation of an independent Jewish state in Israel. And that goal was the focus of the first Zionist Congress that he handled uh, in Basel, Switzerland, that same year. And I think we all know that after that 1897 Congress, Theodore Herzl wrote in his diary... I'm sorry, I was going. Were I to sum up the Basel Congress in a word, which I shall guard against pronouncing publicly, it would be this. At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. And as to when that state would come into being, hurts a forecast, maybe in another five years, at the utmost 50 years. And we note that 50 years later, November 29, 1947, the United Nations passed the partition resolution and the Jewish state was imminent. The state of Israel was announced six months later. So you got to look at this prediction and think, well, this is a very accurate prediction within months. Israel just sprang upon the scene in fulfillment of Isaiah 66, 8 and 9, which says, Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? And that is, in fact, what happened with, with Israel. Now, in the earlier overhead of Elpis Israel, Dr. Thomas suggested that the restoration of the Jews will require between 50 and 60 years to accomplish. And again, we see these linked, because Herzl says uh, 50 years but I don't really think they're the same thing at all, and I don't think they're talking about, about the same thing. Herzl's is very specific. He says within 50 years as he's writing this, 1897. So his is a date. So in 1947, you would expect it to occur. Dr. Thomas wrote his words before 1850. He was not predicting a date. In fact, if we look again, he says the restoration of the Jews is a work in time and will require between 50 and 60 years to accomplish. He's talking about a time period there. 
And then later on that same page, he talks about that there would be a partial or primary uh, uh, restoration before the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Um, So it's really kind of unclear here when he says 50 to 60 years to accomplish. Is he talking about the total restoration or is he talking about the first stage when they would get possession of the land? Now, note what he says elsewhere. He says, The colonization of Judea by Jews under the protection of a Gentile government is neither restitution, restoration, nor regeneration. Nothing short of a national establishment in the land under Messiah and his brethren constitutes either of them in the scriptural sense. Restoration is not simply a return of the race, but the setting up again of institutions that once existed there. The restitution or restoration of the kingdom again to the twelve tribes, this is the reinstitution or restitution spoken of by all the prophets from Moses to the revealer of the apocalypse of John. So, when he said between 50 and 60 years, was he predicting the partial restoration or was he predicting the restitution in full. You know, if we look at this first stage only, again, using the dates 1882 to 1948, we come up with 66 years, which is fairly close. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not a big issue. I think it's an interesting question. And I think the reason I'm bringing this up, it reveals that there's a lot more to Dr. Thomas's statement than the 50 years so let's, uh, let's just summarize this, this issue and move on to some of those others. Because an argument can certainly be made for both applications. Yeah, he was talking about the pre-adventural uh, colonization, or no, he was talking about the total. This may be a little small for some to see. In summary, Dr. Thomas says it will take between 50 and 60 years to accomplish. Theodore Herzl says maybe in another five years at the utmost 50. Both men anticipated restoration of the nation of Israel. Both specify 50 years as a possible time period to accomplish this. And again, Theodore Herzl wrote his words in 1897, predicting the establishment of the Jewish state within a time period of 50 years from the date of the Basel Congress. Dr. Thomas wrote his words before 1850, 32 years before immigration even began, predicting a length of time that it would take for the process of restoration to occur. He offered no specific starting date, but rather says, when the fullness of the Gentiles is come. And his prediction of 50 to 60 years is subject to interpretation regarding his application of the word restoration because he predicted two stages in the restoration. The first is before the Battle of Armageddon and the second after it. Therefore, if he was predicting the pre-adventual colonization of Palestine, the process took 66 years, he was close. If he meant the establishment of the kingdom and he expected the kingdom to be established within 50 to 60 years, well, of course, that has not occurred yet. Now, going on, let me kind of set up the focus for some of the remaining. 
because we're going to look real closely, closely at Theodore Herzl. He's the only Israel rebirth pioneer, if I can call him that, that we'll be uh, examining. His transformation, his vision, his role really represents the Zionist movement and the rebirth of Israel. And it's important that we understand what that vision was. Now, you know, for me, it's Theodore Herzl's story that gives us an understanding of how God arranged to bring back Israel after all those years. And in researching this, my question was, why or, or how did Zionism catch on and work during this period when it hadn't worked before? It hadn't even been tried before. The Jews had been persecuted, massacred, run out of countries uh, for centuries with no apparent attempt to return to Palestine. Well, you know, obviously the answer is God's appointed time had come. But Theodore Herzl's story tells us how he accomplished it. And as we will see, the story bears out the secular nature of the return, verifying Dr. Thomas's prediction that the pre-adventural colonization of Palestine will be on purely political principles. Okay, immigration started in 1882, and we won't have time today to go into that heavy, but why 1882? You know, what was magic about 1882? What caused immigration and colonization to uh, begin? It's another story in itself, but it formally did begin then, and there were, two, there were some waves of immigration. The first one was from 82 to 84. The second one was from uh, 1890 to 91. Now, these immigration movements did not adequately support their first colonies, nor did these movements succeed in attracting Western European Jews. The colonies were in crisis. They were going into a utterly destitute land. Utterly destitute land. Uh, in each case, half of the immigrants went back where they came from. Herzl himself observed this. And he did not take this colonization seriously. You would think he would have been really happy to see the colonization of Palestine start, but he wasn't. In fact, he labeled it an artificial infiltration. He said, but the attempts at colonization made even by really benevolent men, interesting attempts though they were, have so far been unsuccessful. These attempts were interesting in that they represented on a small scale the practical forerunners of the idea of a Jewish state. They were even useful, for out of their mistakes may be gathered the experience of carrying the idea out successfully on a larger scale. They have, of course, done harm also. The transportation of anti-Semitism to new districts, which is the inevitable consequence of such artificial infiltration, seems to me to be the least of these evils. Far worse is the circumstance that unsatisfactory results tend to cast doubts on intelligent men. His attitude here probably reflected the attitude of most Jews in the world at that time. He's basically he's saying, when Jews go anywhere where there's already Gentiles, there will be conflict, there will be anti-Semitism. He's also saying that if you're doing something and you're not successful, 
you're just spoiling it for everybody else. You're not going to get other Jews involved. So he was not for this. So here he is, the father. We know him as the father of Zionism. How did he get involved in Zionism? What was his perspective on Zionism? How did he propose that it work out? Herzl was born in 1860 in Budapest, Hungary. He was from an assimilated family. He was educated in German culture. He was an admirer of German culture. His family moved to Vienna, the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was educated in law, but he was a Jew. He found it difficult to find a position of respect. He ended up writing plays, and then he got a job as a newspaper uh, reporter. In 1891, he was sent to Paris as a correspondent for the newspaper. And even though France was the first country to officially end anti-Jewish discrimination, it was everywhere. And Herzl at that point began to consider how could he alleviate this Jewish problem. The anti-Jewish atmosphere in France was heightened in 1882-84 to by the Panama Canal scandal which involved Jewish as well as French upper-class investors. But it reached a climax with the Dreyfus trial. It's the Dreyfus trial that pushed Herzl over the edge and decided something has to be done. Now, what was the Dreyfus trial? Something that happened in 1894. Captain Alfred Dreyfus had entered the French army as an engineer. He was Jewish. He was later the only Jew on the general staff. He was accused of selling military secrets to the Germans. He was put on trial. It was a sham trial. He was found guilty and uh, sentenced to a penal colony. He had people. It was such a sham, apparently, that there were people working on his behalf. He was brought back from the penal colony five years later, and he was retried. Well, actually, it appears that when he was retried, he was convicted again, but not on the evidence. He was convicted to avoid humiliation of the army. But that was very transparent, too. Uh, Very soon, that was overturned. Uh, He was exonerated. He was reinstated into the army in 1906. And by World War I, he had reached the rank of lieutenant uh, colonel uh, in the service. But... His treatment generated a lot of resentment among Jews. It was a reminder to them of the constant and ongoing danger of upsurges in popular prejudice. It was the Dreyfus trial that Herzl says that caused him to drop his commitment to assimilating within societies because it was clear that there would be no peace nor security for Jews in any Gentile society. Suddenly, separation seemed to be the only answer. The Jews must have a home of their own. But what we notice is that Herzl identifies the Jewish problem as a, quote, a national question that needed a, quote, diplomatic solution that needed the, quote, support of the civilized nations. He first went to the Jewish aristocracy 
to try to get funding, he was rebuffed. In 1896, he published his book, Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State, and widespread enthusiasm resulted. Herzl had presented the problem and a potential solution in a manner that appealed to the Jewish common person. It appealed to the Jewish population. The next few years, that book was published in many languages and many editions. Herzl succeeded where others had failed. He reached the masses. And he worked untiringly to build a popular Jewish movement. In 1897, at his own expense, he established a political weekly publication dedicated to the Zionist cause. And there was opposition, Jewish uh, uh, opposition. As the date for the first Zionist Congress, Congress drew near, it was openly, publicly opposed by various Orthodox, Reform, and secular Jewish groups. But when it convened on August 29, 1897, there were 197 delegates there from around the world. And they established what became known as the Zionist Platform and they established the Jewish National Fund for the Acquisition of Land. And word got out from there. But when we look at the platform, you know, I need to go back. This is the first time I've ever done a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, so ha have some patience with me, please. He reached the masses. This is what he says in his book. He says, We have honestly endeavored everywhere to merge ourselves in the social life of surrounding communities and to preserve the faith of our fathers. We are not permitted to do so. In vain we are loyal patriots, our loyalty to some places running to extremes. In vain do we make the same sacrifices of life and property as our fellow citizens. In vain do we strive to increase the fame of our native land in science and art, or her wealth by trade and commerce. In countries where we have lived for centuries, we are still cried down as strangers. In the world as it now is, and for an indefinite period will probably remain, might precedes right. It is useless, therefore, for us to be loyal patriots, if we could only be left in peace. For old prejudices against us still lie deep in the hearts of the people. He would have proofs of this need only listen to the people when they speak with frankness and simplicity. Proverb and fairy tale are both anti-Semitic. A nation is everywhere a great child which can certainly be educated, but its education would, even in most favorable circumstances, occupy such a vast amount of time that we could, as already mentioned, remove our own difficulties by other means long before the process was accomplished. Through the providence of God, that book reached the people, and it attracted them. So, I, but look at the Zionist platform that we came up with. This is the first Zionist Congress. Zionism aspires to establish a homeland for the Jewish people, guaranteed by international law in the land of Israel. Four means were resolved as necessary to secure a national homeland. One, settling the land by, of Israel by farmers, artisans, and merchants. Two, organizing and uniting all Jewry by means of local 
and general activity in accordance with the laws of each country. Three, intensifying Jewish national feeling and Jewish national consciousness. And four, preparing to receive the consent of governments to the realization of the Zionist goal. Now note, second line, guaranteed by international law. Uh, note, in accordance with the laws of each country. And note the last one, preparing to receive the consent of governments to the realization of the Zionist goal. Herzl imagined that this would be a solution that the world would embrace. The Zionist Congress was a huge success. It was covered by hundreds of national and regional newspapers. And we've seen the comments that Herzl, Herzl wrote in his diary at the end of the Congress, but his enthusiasm was summed up in a final comment. He said, at Basel, I founded the Jewish state. The state, in its essence, has already been founded in the will of the people for a state. He reached the Jewish people, and he knew it. You know, but that reaching and that desire alone would not bring about his dream. I want to look briefly at Herzl's attempts to get the support of the nations to arrive at the diplomatic solution that he desired. Remember, Dr. Thomas predicted this would be done on purely political principles. He met with the Kaiser twice. He even met him in Palestine, hoping to secure his support for a for colonization as a German protectorate. He didn't get it. He met with the Russian government, hoping they would intercede with Turkey. He met with the Sultan of Turkey three times. In 1901, he met with him offering to purchase the property and to help with Turkey's financial situation. You know, Turkey was known as a sick man of Europe. Their finances were being handled by their creditors. Herzl says, listen, you let us establish a nation there. We will handle your finances. Who better than Jews to handle your finances? He was really upfront about it. In 1902, he again met with the Sultan. He was offered a permit to settle what is now Iraq. But the Sultan would not give him Palestine. It was too hot a political deal. Later in 1902, he met with him again, and again the Sultan turned him down. And all he would allow was settlers could keep entering Palestine as immigrants but at the most they could do would become Turkish uh, citizens. They could not have a homeland. Herzl met with, the, with British government officials at various times. And in fact, it was the British who were sympathetic, who offered him Uganda for Jewish settlement. They said, you can have Uganda, you can have a Jewish governor, you can have autonomy. We'll give it to you. Herzl was desperate. He submitted this to the 6th Zionist Congress in 1903, but he withdrew his support when those who were opposed to it walked out of the Congress. And the story is, he went running after them and then reconfirmed his fidelity to Zion as had been laid out in the original platform at the 1st Congress. Theodore Herzl bore the weight of the Zionist movement on himself. 
His family suffered. His health suffered. Just before he met his death, he met with the Pope, asking him to take up the Zionist cause with the Sultan. And what did he do there? He offered protection of the Christian sites in Palestine. He was exhausted. He was ill. He died in Vienna in 1904 at 44 years of age. Now, I have to admire his vision, his effort, his determination. But brothers and sisters, it was a secular effort. He represented Jewish interests and Jewish nationalism. What was his position on religion? In his book, Der Judenstadt, under the title of Theocracy, he says, Shall we end by having a theocracy? No, indeed. Faith unites us. Knowledge gives us freedom. We shall therefore prevent any theocratic tendencies from coming to the fore on the part of our priesthood. We shall keep our priests within the confines of their temples in the same way we should keep our professional army within the confines of their barracks. Army and priesthood shall receive honors high as their valuable functions deserve. Now, where is God in this? Again, Dr. Thomas, the colonization of Palestine will be on purely political principles. And this is the conclusion that this review brings us to, that it was purely political. Because assimilation into other countries didn't work, Herzl sought a solution which he proposed depended upon the world's goodwill and cooperation. His was a diplomatic solution. Quote, a political world question to be discussed and settled by the civilized nations of the world in council with, quote, legal guarantees. His vision was a Jewish state, one that would take its place as a respected and cooperative member of the civilized nations, a state which he said would be a model nation, earning the respect and goodwill of the rest of the world. He didn't know God. Writing five I'm sorry, writing 50 years prior to Theodore Herzl's Zionist aspirations. Note the contrasting approach and understanding of Dr. Thomas. Again, back to Elpis Israel. Way back then, he said, now any person acquainted with the present insecure condition of Palestine under the Ottoman dominion must be satisfied from the testimony that some other power friendly to Israel must then have become paramount over the land which is able to guarantee protection to them. But to what part of the world shall we look for a power whose interest will make it willing, as it is able, to plant the ensign of civilization upon the mountains of Israel? I know not whether the men who at present contrive the foreign policy of Britain entertain the idea of assuming the sovereignty of the Holy Land or of promoting this colonization by the Jews. Their present intentions, however, are of no importance one way or the other because they will be compelled by events soon to happen, to do what under existing circumstances heaven and earth combined could not move them to attempt. The finger of God has indicated a course to be pursued by Britain which cannot be evaded and which her counselors will not only be willing but eager to adopt when the crisis comes upon them. 
The decree has long since gone forth, which calls upon the line of Tarshish to protect the Jews. Upward of a thousand years before the British were a nation, the prophet addresses them as the power which at eventide should interest themselves in behalf of Israel. We have got to be impressed by Dr. Thomas's prediction. Because again, it was written before the Jews were even invited to return to Palestine. It was written before Britain's role, as strong as she was, could by natural events be anticipated to control that specific area of the world. Now, I know Dr. Thomas was an Englishman. I know England ruled the world. But the definitive and authoritative manner in which he presents this role, for me, is nothing short of stunning. It's impressive, not only because it proved to be true, but I guess I'm just not the Bible student to be able to find how Dr. Thomas reached that conclusion to be able to state it with the definiteness uh, that uh, that he did. You know, and I started paging through. I was looking. And the, the best verse I could find was Isaiah 69. Now let me read Isaiah 69 to you. It says, Surely the isles shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them unto the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel because he hath glorified thee. But as I read the chapter, the chapter seems to be addressing a time period after Christ's return. But Dr. Thomas gives us further indication of the source of his conviction. Again, help us Israel. He says, A power must take possession of the country capable of outstretching its wings for the defense of a people. The lion power will not interest itself in behalf of the subjects of God's kingdom from pure generosity piety towards God or love of Israel. The possession or ascendancy of Britain in Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba will naturally lead to the colonization of Palestine by the Jews. Thus the proverb will be verified which saith, The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous, and the transgressor for the upright. Fear not, O Israel, for I have redeemed thee. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Fear not, for I am with thee, I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. And here too, we see Britain's involvement develop in these areas just as Scripture and Dr. Thomas, as he had interpreted it. In Egypt, Britain had a presence in Egypt for years. Uh, They occupied and controlled most of Cairo. In 1883, remember Dr. Thomas wrote, published 1850. In 1883, Lord Cromer established absolute rule, not in Egypt, but in Cairo. By 1916, World War I, martial law was in effect, and there was a European Cairo and an Egyptian Cairo. 1919, Egypt became a protectorate of Great Britain. After World War II, Egypt was Britain's and the ally or during World War II, it was their base from which the whole African campaign was fought. Ethiopia. The coastal section of what used to be Ethiopia, I think it's uh, 
Etria, Etria, I'm not sure how, how to pronounce it. In 1941, Britain captured and controlled Etria. They occupied it after the war, uh, and then in 1948, they administered it as a United Nations Trust. It's, of course, now a, an independent country. Seba, the dictionary says that Seba was a, a northern part of Ethiopia. And when you look in different maps, they kind of speculate where it was. A lot of it shows it all inland. Uh, I saw one map that showed that it had a little bit of uh, coastal coastal section. But Seba was to have included the ancient city of Moro, which still exists. Just north of that is the city of, Car of uh, Khartoum. The British occupied and conquered Khartoum in 1898. So all of these countries came under the control and within the scope of British influence. Now, we're going to look at the map, but the, the verse he uses is Isaiah 43, 3 and 4. What do they mean? How is Dr. Thomas interpreting what God is saying here? Well, in Eureka, volume 3b, page 199 to 200, he offers a further explanation. Verse 3, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Verse 4, I have loved thee, therefore will I give men for thee. Here God referred to Dr. Thomas here as the proprietor of the earth and the distributor of nations upon it, which he certainly is. Here God declares he will accomplish the protection and the return of the Jews to Israel through a nation who is to be providentially given dominion over the territories of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba. And when you note the location of these on, on the map, that's not real clear, is it? Of course, you have Egypt. Here's uh, Eteria, Ethiopia, and Seba generally is shown to be somewhere in that, that area. Now, why is that area important? The Red Sea, you go from the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, into the Indian Ocean, giving you uh, access to Asia, to, to uh, uh, India, and that sure beats going all the way around Africa. The Red Sea has always been a major shipping route. Conquerors have always tried to conquer and control that area. Uh, when the Suez Canal was opened in 1869, this route became one of, if not the heaviest shipping routes ever used. Thus, the highway to Asia and Indian ports was assured to Britain when they controlled the countries along that route. So all the way in the north from uh, Suez down to the Straits of uh, Mandel, they had control of. Thus, this highway was assured them. In return, what God was saying, for this commercial and political supremacy that I will give this nation of Britain, that they in turn would look favorably upon the settlement of Israel. Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba had all been self-ruled nations and self-ruled peoples in their own right at different times in history. They were given here to Britain in exchange 
for British promotion and protection. Now, earlier I said I wanted to contrast the positions of Theodore Herzl and Dr. Thomas regarding the rebirth of Israel. The contrast is obvious. One is secular, one is spiritual. One represents the thinking and the aspirations of man. The other reflects the decrees of the living God. One sought peace and unity with the nations of the world. The other saw the end of the dominion of man. One looked forward to a utopian dream. In the conclusion of his book, he said that Jews settled in their own state would probably have no more enemies, that they would live in peace. The other referenced the everlasting covenant, even the sure mercies of David, the establishment of the kingdom of God upon the whole, whole earth. Now, in regard to what Dr. Thomas said about Britain's, you know, there's one more thing I want to show you here. Regarding Herzl, it's interesting to see what modern-day Jews when they look back to Herzl and those early founders, what they think. This is called the Jewish uh, predicament. It's from the International Jewish Post uh, last year. And this is really kind of an, an insightful article. And it says, close to 60 years after its establishment, Israel remains something of a curio in the family of nations. Its diplomats do their professional best to represent their country as a normal sovereign nation. But the truth is that the Jewish state can't quite shake off being the odd state out. This would be an anathema to the Zionist theorists and thinkers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, whose essential hypothesis was that once the Jewish people enjoyed what every other normal nation possesses, a country of their own, they would automatically enter the family of nations as a normal people, and anti-Semitism would shrivel and die. This sounds like satire today, but the earliest theorists did not foresee the awesome obstacles strewn along the path. They did not envisage that over half a century after Jewish freedom had been won, Israel would still be deprived of the sovereign tranquility its founders set out to initiate. With hindsight, one wonders to what extent these dreamers of yesteryear comprehended the depths of the, uh, the anomalies and abnormalities of the Jewish people's experience in history. 38 years after the children of Israel embarked on their exodus from Egypt, the heathen prophet Balaam articulated in astonishingly accurate terms the future destiny of this nation. Beguilingly, he said, This is a people that shall dwell alone and shall not be counted among the nations. If only Theodore Herzl had known that. One last thing on Britain. Dr. Thomas said, you know, regarding Britain's motivation, they're not going to want to do this. He said the lion power would not interest itself in this from their generosity or their love of Israel. British support of Zionism started in World War I. 
And you've got to see this all as the plan of God, how things work out. Britain and France had declared war on Turkey, the sick man of Europe. And though the immigrant Jews that were already there were loyal to their new country, Turkey, the Turkish authorities were suspicious of them. They deported some. They persecuted others. They feared them as a strange people in their land. So during the war, both Germany and Britain attempted to win the allegiance of the Jews, both promising them support for a homeland in Palestine. You know, Germany and Turkey were on the same side. Germany says, you help us win this. We would do our best to influence Turkey to give you a homeland. Britain said, help us drive the Turks out and we will give you a homeland. In so many words. Despite German efforts to assist Turkey, British troops under General Allenby made their way into Palestine and they were determined to run the Turks out, and they did. There were three factors in Britain's support for Zionism. Number one, yes, there was a natural sympathy at that time for Jewish aspirations for a homeland. You know, in 1903, they had offered them Uganda. But that also by offering them this, it would also be an ally to them to help drive the Turks out of Palestine. Also, number two, they hoped to influence Russian-born Jews. There were so many Jews in Russia, and that's where most of these early colonists were coming from. They hoped to, by this promise, enlist Russian Jews coming there in droves to again help populate that and be uh, and be on on their, on their side. And then uh, noticing the Bolshevik anti-war propaganda that was going on in Russia. They was afraid their ally, Russia, was going to pull out of the war. So they hoped to keep Russian Jews excited in this uh, so they could keep Russia in the war. In November 2nd, 1917, the British government announced its support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine and issued the Balfour Declaration. Now, we all know about that. But the interesting part here is, is that the Allied nations lined up behind Britain. Uh, Britain's Zionist policy, as it was known, was endorsed by the United States, by Italy, France, and other Allied nations. The Allied powers incorporated the Balfour Declaration into the peace treaty with Turkey, and then they allotted the Palestine mandate to Great Britain. Support for Zionism remained the policy of Britain until World War II, when Britain switched to a policy designed to assist the Arabs and impede further Jewish immigration and self-defense. Thank you.